thank you for doing this, I guess, because uh, that, that, it was fast, and I guess Glenn's emails work. <laughs> Glenn, that's the power of Glenn. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, yeah, he, he's been very generous. I just got the, uh, uh, the magazine, the book, I guess that's what it's called. That's what it's uh, called. He said, yeah, he sent me a copy, so that's I've been great. reading that. Uh, yeah, so so we're gonna we're gonna start, I guess. All right. Because I don't have like a jingle or anything at the start, so uh, I always start with the same question, which is, uh, who are you and what do you do? <laughs> I am Jason <laughs> Snell, and it's a great <laughs> yeah. question. What I do? <laughs> I um, I uh, I I think my Twitter bio says I write and talk and stuff, which is about it. I am my job is the editorial director at IDG Consumer, so we are the publishers of MacWorld, PC World. Tech Hive and Greenbot, four websites focused on different aspects of consumer technology. So I'm the manager of the whole editorial department. So all of our editors ultimately report to me. The four editors in chief of those four websites report to me. Um, it's a management job, and I don't love lots of parts of it because um, my heart is closer to the content. I've been working the last few months to get closer to the content uh, because for something like eight or nine years, I was the editor in chief of MacWorld and um, and that's that's generally, I think, what I'm most known for. And then the other thing, you know, as a part of this job, I write I write stories. I manage our editorial process. I host a podcast for Tech Hive called Clockwise. And uh, in my spare time, I uh, do a podcast called The Incomparable, which is about pop culture. And uh, we've got a couple of spinoffs of that, um, all of which you can find at theincomparable.com. And that's sort of what I do. That's one of my creative – I've always had a side project, creative outlet outlet at some point um you know throughout my adult life i've always had something on the side that that sort of i can do and i can control while i've been doing the main thing whether it's school or work and uh, the incomparable is that right now yeah so i guess we'll start with the incomparable and then get back because i want to talk to you about writing and publishing because i'm an online editor now basically i'm an editor now which sounds yeah. weird to me but yeah i do want to talk about the incomparable because that's again one of those shows I listen to. Like, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, um, and you are you are the sole reason I recently rewatched the entire uh, Star Trek the original series. Oh wow! Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's it was a while. Like I, I don't know when I last watched it, but uh, when I got, I heard you guys talk about it, I just I just went through the whole thing again. I, I tried to get my girlfriend into it, but she she gave up after about two episodes. I think. <laughs> Uh, that that didn't work out, but yeah. So so okay. So for anybody that doesn't know, like, explain the incomparable, I guess. Wow, um, explain the incomparable. So, I what 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 happened is we <laughs> uh, a bunch of people I know, mostly computer related in some way, uh, were talking on Twitter about like sci-fi novels or something like that, and I said, you know, there ought to be a podcast. Um, famous last words, where we talk <laughs> about this stuff. Because that would be fun because we're friends and we know each other from technology stuff. But we obviously have this interest in sci-fi and fantasy and movies and TV shows and books and stuff like that. So that's how it started. And it essentially is a group of a group of people. Um, yeah, I'd say it's a group of friends. Some of them, some of us were friends before we started and some of us have become friends as we've been doing it. It started out as maybe acquaintances of some of the people. Um, but it's sort of grown into a larger group who... who um, 
uh, people fall kind of in and out uh, based on topic, and we're pretty broad with the topic. We, it's not a comic book podcast or a, a Star Trek podcast or a uh, you know Marvel Comics uh, movies podcast or a uh, sci-fi novels only podcast. It's none of those things. It's kind of anything that interests us that we think is fun and cool and that we want to talk about that is broadly, I would say, in the kind of geek pop culture variety, which is, you know, we're not talking about uh, a lot of mainstream, you know, serious stuff. There usually is a, a, a nerdy angle to it, although we've We've gone back and done – we've redefined that in a lot of ways. We did a, a board games episode, and we have done a few installments of uh, this thing called Old Movie Club where we watch movies from the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, which is nerdery of a different kind, but it's still nerdery, which I think is uh, I think is really the unifying theme. Is it's it's geeky yeah. enthusiasm about pop culture one way or another. So we do that every week, and then we – we have a side thing that we spun off where we play Dungeons and Dragons. We did it once sort of on a lark and uh, people really liked it and we had fun playing. So that's turned into a, a side podcast called Total Party Kill, which is actually a lot of fun. I'd never played Dungeons and Dragons before and I've had a blast with that. And, uh, you know, it's so it's fun. It's it, it, at, at its core. It is a chance for me to have a creative outlet and also to talk about this stuff that I love and I, that I watch or play or read and uh, with with people who also are enthusiastic about it, which is pretty cool. Yeah, because the reason I had you say that, and it's not me saying it in the intro, is basically because we do, like I do a similar show here, where I, I've stolen a bunch of like concepts from you guys. <laughs> We've been doing this podcast. That is a great a compliment. Thank you. <laughs> no, the draft, mainly the draft. I love the draft. Like the drafts you guys do, that those are by far my favorite shows. So, and we've done a bunch of them because our show started as a Game of Thrones podcast because the guy I do it with, he's the main co-host. Uh, he actually translated all of the R.R. Martin books into Slovene. So, oh wow! Uh, we start, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. He's he's still tra he's still translating. He's translating some of the short stories now. I think huh. of uh, Martin's. Yeah. So we started with the Game of Thrones, and then we sort of expanded into you know everything else. But we we mostly stick to TV, but we've done some movie ones. But yeah, the drafts we basically stole from you guys. It's so. you know I and I I mean that's been floating out there for a while. I I, I there's a sports podcast that I listen to that. They did ridiculous fantasy drafts, and and uh, I think that's basically all they do now. And I always I always thought it was a fun a fun way to do it. I I did fantasy uh, football and baseball and things like that, and and you draft players. And I, I thought it would be, you know, it really is just an excuse to for everybody to make a list of things they like and talk about them. And at its base level, that's good. And then it adds this slight added area of competitiveness where. Um, if somebody else picks it, you don't get to pick it, although you can still talk about it. And so it's, we actually did one last night as we're recording this, we recorded one last night and, uh, I, I the same guy, one guy was right in front of the other guy and they had similar tastes. And so every time the first guy would pick, the second guy would be like, Oh, you took my pick. But then they would, it was like he got two picks because he got to talk about this guy's pick and then his own pick. So it, it's, you know, it's a fun, it's a fun excuse and it adds a little competitive, uh, aspect, but in the end, it's just a group of people talking about stuff they're they're enthusiastic about and why they like it, and and that's fun. So I I'm, I admit I'm kind of addicted to the draft format. I'm trying not to do too many of them, and I think I failed <laughs> recently because we did a computer did a computer games draft. We did a yeah. best robots draft. We did a, a best uh, computers draft. And um, that's that's a lot of drafts. So I'm trying to space them out, but it's fun. It's a great way to. 
you know, not every week can be let's let's closely watch a classic movie. Some you got to vary it, and 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 the drafts are more like a sampler of you know twenty things that are great instead of just one, and lets everybody get their enthusiasms out. So it's a fun, it's a it's it's a lot of fun to do it. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't fun, and it is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's the same here. We just try to get a list of like ten things somebody yeah. should somebody should see basically. That's... Yeah, lists are lists are fun. We we did we've done a bunch of book episodes that it's literally just I think we call it the the reading list, summer reading list, winter reading list, and it's just an excuse for people to cart out some of their favorite books. And the response to those episodes is great because people they they find out oh there's somebody I like you know and they don't generally know us but they listen to us so they feel like they know us pretty well and they're like oh they recommended this book I'm gonna go read it and that's great and from our perspective it's just I'm gonna tell you about some books I like but it serves a a, a useful purpose I think in that people want to check that stuff out and and because somebody's endorsed it as a favorite yeah that that's why I read Red Shirts basically ah Scalzi yeah book. sure yeah. sure that's a weird book. <laughs> <laughs> it's a weird, yeah, but but if you're like a fan of Star Trek, I yeah. think that's it's one of the best. I yeah. think like dealing with the whole universe. But yeah, so okay, I do want to talk about Star Trek a little. I'm sorry, because oh, like, let's do I, it. Yeah, <laughs> um, like your like your I'm talking about you specifically, like your enthusiasm about the original series, especially the first two seasons, right? was really what made me watch the whole thing again. So I'm I'm just asking like because you're American you're a little older than me. Like you 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 saw him when you were a kid on like TV or it, in the rerun uh, stages like uh, when it was in syndication. And it was in syndication because it went off the air uh -huh. I think uh, uh about a year it went off the network about a year before I was born so I never I wasn't even alive to see it on on NBC when it originally aired but I when so John Syracuse and Dan Morin and Tony Sindelar and a bunch of guys who were on the podcast are John's maybe five or six years younger than me and Dan and Tony are about 10 years younger than me and so they talk about Star Wars for example yeah. and they say I can't remember life before Star Wars and for me I can remember life before Star Wars I can in fact as a, as a Star Trek fan I remember the you know it being kind of usurped the title of like famous space thing went from Star Trek all of a sudden in 1977 it was Star Wars and I remember being kind of bent out of shape about that a little bit although <laughs> I, I saw Star Wars in the theater a couple of times and I really loved it so I wasn't too mad about it I, I did I did love it for me though Star Trek fills that role that I can't remember not knowing about Star Trek. So I was probably it was in syndication there was a the one of the channels we only got about four channels um and uh, it was one of the channels they ran it every day at I think five o'clock it might have been six some of the time and five some of the time but in the evening every day uh five days a week and I watched it religiously, and I cannot remember not watching it. I must have been four or five when I started watching it. And I do remember watching it at five or six or somewhere in there when my memories go back, you know, and reach that point. And because I, I remember also that in 1977 or something like that, when I was six years old, I... Uh, uh, they ran the animated series, and I didn't even yeah. know it existed. And I was like, what is this? And I remember being really, <laughs> really excited about it, which means I'm, I already had the, all the original series committed to memory. So for me, it is... I get when Dan and John talk about how Star Wars is sort of imprinted on them. They, they knew Star Wars before they knew themselves, essentially. That's what it's like for me and Star Trek, the original series. is It was the thing that I grabbed onto that imprinted itself on me. And, you know, 
Captain Kirk and Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy are, I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous to say this, but they are a part of me in a way that probably a lot of, alt- maybe most other pop culture stuff is not because it hit me at that perfect moment and became you know, a part of my childhood experience. They were like childhood friends in a way that Star Wars, I remember those were great movies when I was a kid growing up. Star Trek, I just can't imagine life without it. It's just some, there's a little difference there. Yeah, that's, yeah. You see, that, that's the answer that I wanted, basically. <laughs> I'm happy, to, I'm happy to, to provide that for you. Yeah, it's funny, and I don't know what that difference is, but that's, that to me is the, is the difference is if you can't even remember life without it, then it's just a, you know, then it's not something you ever discovered in life. I mean, as you, as you, as you get older, uh, the world becomes almost entirely things that you discover, and you think that's life as you find new things. But there's that moment when you're a child where you can look back and say, you know, these are the things that just I assumed were part of the world, like a, a car. <laughs> where if, if you if you were born before there were cars, that's not the case. But now everybody who's alive remembers that cars are a, just a part of of the world. Well, Star Trek was always a part of the world. It didn't come into the world for me. I never I never discovered it in any way that I can remember. It was just always there for me, and that that makes it different somehow from all of the other stuff that I've come to love that came after it. Okay, so and when you guys talked about like Star Trek, you mentioned the Twilight Zone, the original one, a couple of times, right? And like recently, through some you know slightly illegal <laughs> like tinkering, I've actually gotten my hands on like Netflix, so I have All Netflix right. now, which Excellent. is technically not available in Slovenia. I'm paying for it, but it's you know it's not really here. But you can do it with some DNS stuff. I think if it. you're paying for it, uh, good for you. I, I would I would yeah. endorse that approach. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that's why what, what I keep telling myself. So, sure. uh, <laughs> uh, so the entire Twilight Zone is actually available there. I've never seen that, but because I, I, I heard you mention that you know some of the Star Trek episodes were basically just you know copied like mm-hmm. Twilight Zone episodes with the, like Charlie X and stuff. Right? Yeah, that's supposed to be. Yeah. So I'm watching uh, the Twilight Zone now. Uh, I think I'm like 20 episodes in. This has been like the last month before mm. I go to bed. I just watch a. Uh, Twilight Zone episode. So I just wanted to ask you, since you're the, you know, you're you're my focal point here. (laughs) Like, like, um, was America, like, you see, the thing is, like, I've seen, like, old movies, like, old American movies, but I I haven't seen much, like, black and white American TV, because everything I've seen was, you know, in color, maybe from the 70s on. But it's, like, proper, like, from 1959 Mm -hmm. and stuff. So like how how was that in America like how, like the was was that actually America or is that like a Hollywood version of it? I if think you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, well, I I was born in 1970, so I I I, I can't. No, I I get that, <laughs> but I, I I'm just saying like you saw you know you saw some of the black and white stuff because it was on TV there and it was never right. on TV here. Right. And like very few few of those shows sort of you know have the uh, are like the Twilight Zone that you can watch them now and not just feel completely embarrassed by the production value right. and all of that stuff. Right. Well, the, the black and white, uh, it, it's like HD now. I mean, I, I, I feel like the black and white shows, there was a divide and almost nothing was shown after a certain point or exported because people didn't want black and white TV anymore. They wanted color. Yeah. Just like now, it, this is why all the studios are going back and trying to convert all their old shows that were done on film to HD is because there's an investment there. People at some point are just going to refuse to watch something that's not in HD. But the Twilight Zone... You know, it was 
it was such a different show. It stayed on the air when most of the black and white, like like some shows that were shot in black and white to begin with, and then shot in color later. They they literally like stopped syndicating the black and white seasons because nobody wanted to see them. So there's a season of Gilligan's Island that's in black and white <laughs> that I've never seen, and I watched every episode season. of that. There's a I believe there are a couple seasons of Bewitched that were shot in black and white. I mean, so that, that was like we're not going to even talk about those because we can't sell them in syndication. I imagine those studios they should colorize them is what they should do because then they could sell them again uh but so so the twilight zone survived because partially i think because the black and white is sort of moody and it, and it actually kind of fits the the subject matter because it is strange and spooky and and serious mm-hmm. and um and it, because it had a huge cult following that was more among i would say more among horror um genre fans than sci-fi fans although that's not entirely fair to paint the Twilight Zone with that brush. Uh, I certainly, the people I knew who loved the Twilight Zone, and I was never a huge Twilight Zone fan. Those people were were horror fans. They loved, and, and in fact, Steve Lutz on our podcast, he's a horror guy, and he's a Twilight Zone guy. So I think there's some affinity there for some of those stories. But that is, um, you know, and it's funny too because Rod Serling, although he is legendary, I think would be considered maybe the greatest writer in in television history if it weren't for the fact that he wrote. Prom- primarily in a genre in this you know sci-fi horror genre of the twilight zone because people look down on that sort of thing but you know he gathered around him these brilliant writers and they made these little um little plays these little 25 minute anthology show plays and that's the other downside of the twilight zone is that you know you don't have characters to glom onto like you do with star trek where it's the same people every week it's new Mm -hmm. it's a new play it's a new story every single week so they're much more like short stories than like uh, you know a novel with the characters that you follow through but um but it's brilliant stuff and and it is in the hollywood and this is what one of the things that i think they've got in common they have writers in common star trek and the twilight zone but also that hollywood production thing like i'm a fan of doctor who and when you look at the 60s and 70s doctor who it's not a hollywood show it is it is <laughs> a it well I, I know i know but it, just in terms of the way it's made i mean you can tell that in britain they had a stage tradition and so in britain the mm. idea of tv was you get a bunch of stage actors in a room oh, with a bunch of say, uh... with a bunch of cameras and you just film it and and hollywood was this movie making machine and a, a movies but also b movies westerns action adventure and if you look at the Twilight Zone and you look at Star Trek, that's what you're seeing is those came out of the, they, they were TV and not movies, but they are out of the Hollywood production system and they're shot like, you know, if you look at something like Forbidden Planet, Star Trek is essentially a ripoff of Forbidden Planet. I don't really like that movie, but it looks exactly like Forbidden Planet and it's shot like Forbidden Planet. And that's, that's the thing is that these, these shows were made by the people who made movies in Hollywood in the 50s and 60s, and it feels like it. And so they've got that in common, too. Um, and I suppose if we watched Have Gun, Will Travel or Gunsmoke or something like that from that era, you'd get a similar kind of feel. Um, but it, through 50 years of history, I think that's one of the things that, that comes through from, from both of those is that they feel, you know, they may feel old, but they feel um, kind of glossy and well-made in a way because they they came out of that machine that was just for 50 years already had been spitting out, you know, adventure stories and mm-hmm. westerns and things like that. Yeah, and well, with Twilight Zone and some of Star Trek, <laughs> <laughs> no, the writing's actually, like, pretty good. I mean, for like, when you factor yeah. in when the, when those two shows were made, I mean... 
Because, you know, like, I've just seen those two from, like, that period. I guess. Well, it's 10 years in between, I guess. But, you know, uh, just, it just I don't know, like, American TV, was, American TV wasn't all like that, right? I mean, that's just... I, not... Yeah, there were there were anthology shows like um, Alfred Hitchcock Presents is an example <laughs> of an American TV show anthology series with a... That was, you know, that was the mystery thriller suspense companion to the sci-fi horror fantasy of Twilight Zone. They're similar in a lot of ways. Um, no, it wasn't like that. You mentioned the writing. I mean, Gene Roddenberry wasn't a very good writer, let's just be honest. And he had yeah. some decent writers around him. Um, but, you know, he also made some decisions that, I mean, he created Star Trek and that's great, but he also made some decisions that probably prevented um, the writing from being as good as it could have been. And he, he surrounded himself with some good writers, um, but there were also some bad writers. Uh, Twilight Zone, Rod Serling was legitimately one of the best writers of the 20th century. I mean, I, I, I say that without, I'm trying to check myself and not be, overhype it, but I mean, seriously, among television writers, he's certainly in the top five for the 20th century. Yeah. If not if not the top two, I think Patty Chayefsky and Rod Serling are generally considered the two best TV writers of the 20th century with good reason. And so he surrounded himself, he got Richard Matheson as a really good example and, and a bunch of other amazing writers. And because there were no stars... Um, you know, strangely, it ends up being a writer's show. I mean, the writer ran it. The writer was the host. And so it's a writer's show. And um, because they didn't have to fit a format, it could be about anything every week. And so the writing really came out. Whereas something like Star Trek, you know, Harlan Ellison writes The City on the Edge of Forever. And I've got yeah. that scre original screenplay. And it's really good, but it's not Star Trek. And so Harlan's mad because Dorothy Fontana rewrote it into a Star Trek episode. And it's the best Star Trek episode, but it's not <laughs> Harlan's story because it has to fit. And in the Twilight Zone you know, it was their it was their story or Outer Limits, which which was a follow on and that which Harlan Ellison wrote for very similar or Night Gallery, which Rod Serling did in the 70s. So, yeah, that was part of that anthology TV show tradition, which kind of doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but it, but what 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 is like that today is that TV is, again, more of a writer's medium The generally this concept of a showrunner. That person is a writer. They're the head writer and they're the executive producer and they're in charge of the show and they control every aspect of it. And and that's, I think, why TV is so um, good today is because the writers are in charge and they are making decisions based on their storytelling. And uh, that wasn't true for a lot of TV history, but it was true with The Twilight Zone. I think that's why The Twilight Zone endures. Yeah, and that's that's a great comparison with the TV that's coming out of America these days because like, since like the early 2000s, I guess, it's just gone up and up and up. And because, you know, in the 90s, the TV drama was, I don't know what the best one was, but, you know, compared to today, they were pretty lame, I guess. Yeah, or, or, I mean, and one... certainly in percentage wise. I mean, there were some like yeah. uh, NYPD Blue had uh, yeah, the a couple seasons were, yeah. right, had a couple of really uh, great writers at the center of it. And uh, Homicide, Life on the Street was sort of similar. But and, the, and that led to The Wire, which was which was great. Game of Thrones is an example where Weiss and Benioff, right, who are the guys who do it, they're the they're they're writers and producers and they run that show but they're also the writers and yeah. it means that they have you know creative control or something like true detective there's a guy who wrote that series and he yeah. control and he was the showrunner and he worked with one director and it's like a an eight hour long movie but it's his vision he doesn't have the director works for him <laughs> right and there's no i mean the studio i'm sure gives notes but it's it's much more of a singular vision than a kind of uh 
it, I, I think in the last 20 years before this last five or 10, uh, it was much more of a kind of a product where the writer was interchangeable and it was either about the star or it was about the producer and the writers didn't matter. And the, the rise of the writer, I think, is why there's so much good TV now that that wasn't there before. And, you know, I'm sure Rod Serling would love it because that was that was his thing is he he was a writer who wanted complete creative control and ended up getting it most of the time. Yeah, cause I wrote an article about True Detective for the magazine I write for, right? And that was sort of my point that it kind of, it's 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 like it's it's a TV show that's sort of almost like a movie, but yeah, there's a showrunner, which I, I guess that that I don't know was the show like the showrunner was that for, like was that job even like a thing in the eighties or the nineties? Like was anybody even called the showrunner? I, I think I think the, the showrunner term. I've got a book um, that I borrowed like 10 years ago from Lisa Schmeiser and I haven't given it back called <laughs> the showrunners, which is a profile of a few people. And that was, that was in the late nineties, I want to say. Um, and I think that's when the concept really uh, came into view before then there were producers and there were writers. And I think the showrunner as a, as a concept of a, the writer creative lead on the show, the idea that that was the person in charge. Um, but they hired, uh, producers to do the production technical stuff, but but the the boss was the writer. Uh, that that seemed to be mostly happen in 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 the nineties, I would say. But there are lots of exceptions. I mean, there are always exceptions. Um, I think Stephen Bochco with Hill Street Blues in the eighties was an example of that. In the early eighties, there were some um, you know uh, there's some examples like that along the way where there was a writer who who had enough clout to be the sort of writer and producer and and do it do it all. Joe Straczynski for Babylon five was an example of that, where he just, he was the boss and he wrote almost all, every episode of it. And, uh, Joss Whedon, obviously, um, yeah. that was now he's sort of the showrunner of the Marvel movies, but he was with Buffy, <laughs> you know, that was, that was his thing. So, but it was, yeah, it was a late nineties, early two thousands sort of change. And I'm not quite sure why, uh, it came to that point. I think maybe it's because as strange as this is to, to believe that they realized that the product was better if the writer was in charge, no, that that's I know not the it seems crazy, but but I think maybe even the executives realized that the that the writer or the writers had a better creative vision, especially if you could surround them with people. That's, that's certainly the model now for most shows, which not all shows, you know, some shows are, are are less like that. But when you look at Community with Dan Harmon, he doesn't write every episode, but he's the showrunner, and they fired him, <laughs> and then they brought yeah, him back. Showed for that season, yeah, but, it sort of showed that he wasn't around. You know, it's not a I singular think. vision. Movies and TV are never a singular vision. But having having a person in the in the seat who's making the decisions, who actually is also the the person making the creative decisions. Um, is a is a good thing and you're seeing that replicated like i mentioned doctor who that's what they do now is you know russell t davis brought it back and he was the showrunner and he was the writer and he had veteran producers around him to make the show happen but he was the boss and likewise now Stephen moffat it's the same thing he's the boss and uh that's good that's that's i i think it shows in all of these shows where the writer is the showrunner yeah i'm just waiting for somebody to screw that up <laughs> <laughs> I'm just waiting for that to go away because somehow, like, they're going to screw that system up and it's going to go back to the, you know, executives basically writing the final drafts or something. Like, yeah, yeah. although, and, you know, I think that was the community. I think that was the idea is let's just get rid of this guy. And the fact that they went back to Dan Harmon for the fifth season, I, I don't know. Maybe 
it, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. There are both shows out there, right? There are both there there are shows that are less singular visions that are successful. I think something like The Big Bang Theory is wildly successful, and that is a uh-huh. Chuck Lorre show. But he's got it's a writer's room, and he is a writer, and he is the producer of it. But it feels less of a singular vision and more of an old fashioned, you know, comedy machine that has been set up mm. by a you know by the studio. But in this case, there is a writer at the head of even that show. So I don't know, but like something like Shonda Rhimes who does Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. You know, she's a writer producer and very successful. So you're seeing you're seeing that a lot. Um, but yeah, I do fear that moment where they're like these writers. We got to get rid of them. They're no good. Yeah. Can we do the show without writers? Yeah. But the the thing is, like you mentioned, Shonda Rhimes. That that's the thing that kind of surprised me in the last couple of years because that that format, like the showrunner uh, show, basically showed up on network TV. Because mm-hmm. I I just thought that would never really happen. Because I, I get it, uh, like, on premium cable that that can happen. Because it's, you know, it's a sort of a, sort of a closed system, if you know what I mean. But, like, the net, on network, even, you, like, like, a show like House basically sort of had, like, somebody watching over that show, you know. Or Shonda Rhimes, as you said, with Grey's Anatomy. Right. And, like, so, so do you have any idea why, why, why that can happen on network TV as well? Because I just have this really pessimistic view of, net, of American network television. But I've basically given up almost. Well, they, they're, uh, what's funny is that the network television in the U.S. has gotten – the ratings have gone down to the point where um, popular cable shows actually beat them in the ratings, which is mind-boggling. But like The Walking Dead, which is a basic yeah. cable show, not a premium cable show, beats – network shows in the ratings it's amazing so the networks are finally starting to change uh change their development cycle where they're not putting everything on in the fall and then in the spring and then nothing in the summer um they're changing that to more year-round schedules they're changing how they order shows they used to do a lot of uh 22 episode orders or or they'd pick up 13 and then they'd they'd order the back nine if it did well they're doing a lot of uh different Orders like Sleepy Hollow, which was a big hit, um, is was given a thirteen episode order, and it did very well. And the sh- the producers, pro- they they were building a thirteen episode season, and they there seemed to be an agreement that if it succeeded, what they would do is renew it for another thirteen episode season, not a back nine. And that's what they did when it did well in the ratings. Everybody expected them to order nine more episodes, and instead Fox said, "We will order thirteen more for next year." And that's you know oh, okay. that's a big change where from the old network approach of we're gonna we're gonna do twenty two episodes a year until it uh, and we don't care how good they are until it's done, <laughs> and that's changing now. So I mean I, I think you'll still see sitcoms go for twenty two episodes, but even a lot of sitcom orders are like Community's order was thirteen, Parks and Recreation's order was thirteen, and that those shows may come back. It used to be if you got thirteen and not picked up for more, yeah, you, you were dead. Done, yeah. And I don't think that's uh, now now networks are saying. Well, we're going to run this one for 13 in the fall. We'll run this one for 13 in the spring and, and, and summer. We'll run this for eight in the summer. And it's much more like cable. And I think that's where we're headed is for these things or, or British TV. Actually, it's a lot like British TV where there's no longer any expectation that that show is going to be in that time slot every week all year round. But instead, there'll be events and you'll be very excited to come and see your 10 episodes of you know of game of thrones or your 13 episodes of community and then it'll go away for a while and it'll come back later and that's very different but i think in in the end that's going to be good i think 
again, this is one of those strange moments where where the cable stuff, which generally has been pretty good quality, and the networks are like, well, why don't we try that? And uh, we'll see what happens, whether they screw that one up or not. (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, you know, there's always that possibility with American networks, I think. But yeah, you're right. The event thing is kind of awesome. I think that's what happened with the last Sherlock season. Uh, the BBC's Sherlock, the good one. Right. Like, that was a proper, like, that was a thing, even over here. I mean, like, people just knew about it. And, of course, we did, like, three podcasts on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's sort of a change that I, I, I don't know. I, I hope they don't, yeah, like you said, I just hope they don't screw it up somehow because that it just might happen, I guess. But that's me being pessimistic, maybe. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so okay, we have to talk about the 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 stuff you actually do. <laughs> we just spent a half All right. hour. The things on I get, television. things I get paid much more to do. Yes. <laughs> uh, so okay, when you said you 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 you're not as close to the content anymore, I guess. But I still see you writing online. I mean, you're like on TechHive and MacWorld and stuff. So yeah, like. Uh, when, when did you start? Like, and specifically, when did you start writing about technology? Because huh. I think we're a special breed. I <laughs> like to do that. So when I was in um, in elementary school, I liked to write and I loved computers. Uh, and in high school, that continued. I was on my student newspaper, but I also ran a computer bulletin board. And so when I got to college, I worked on the college newspaper. Um, ended up as the editor in chief my senior year. And I was simultaneously, um, we had just, the, 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 the newspaper had just gotten Macs to do all of its publishing. So that was the first time I used a Mac, really. I had an Apple II at that point, an old Apple II. And uh, I bought my first Mac that year. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get one of these. Uh, <laughs> I got some money out of the college college account. And I was like, I don't know if I can pay for the last quarter, but I'm going to get this Mac now. I have to get this Mac now. And I was wiring, like I was the editor-in-chief and I was also like wiring the the, um, the local talk network in the office so that we could move, <laughs> move files around instead of having to, because we had one Mac 2 and a bunch of Mac SEs. And if you wanted to print on the 600 DPI size of a truck image setter, you had to put your, your PageMaker file on a floppy disk and walk it over to the Mac 2, kick off who was ever on the Mac 2, and then print it. And, you know, by the time I left there, you could print from any of the computers. We had also upgraded, and we had more Mac 2s at that point. But uh, we had one with, with – it didn't even have color. It had grayscale. Ooh. Um, <laughs> but uh, you could print to, uh, from any of them, and you could also copy your files over the network. Um, so if you wanted to get on the faster computer, you didn't have to walk it over sneaker net with a, with a floppy. And so, so there, this is the story I'm trying to tell is that I was really into the technology and I was into writing and editing. And, um, that was always, those were always the two areas I was interested in. So when I went to graduate school, uh, I went to journalism school mostly because there weren't, it, the economy was bad. There weren't very many jobs and I didn't really want to work at like a weekly newspaper uh, somewhere. Um, so I went to journalism school figuring, uh, I'll find out if I want to do broadcast, which I decided I didn't want to do TV, um, that was so that was a good lesson learned and because um, I didn't really love the medium and uh, also you make connections and I met an editor a senior editor at Mac user magazine who was a journalism school graduate who was now teaching there and I got her to get me an internship at Mac user and they liked me and so they hired me they I, there were a couple months where I was a, I was freelance writing for them a little bit and then I got another job offer that was not nearly as good. And they were like, Oh wait, 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 we will offer you a job. And they offered me a job. (laughs) 
and 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 literally from there so i started as an intern then was an assistant editor and um in in 97 they uh they shut down mac user and transferred a bunch of us to mac world and i went to mac world then um so i i went from literally went from intern to uh senior vice president and editorial director it took 50, <laughs> it took like 20 years for that all to happen but but um so I got so that was really it is that I I expressed an interest to um that editor um Pam Piffner I said you know my mom wants to know what I'm doing this summer as an internship give me an internship and she's like all right I'll work it I'll, I'll work it out and I bugged her for weeks and I got an internship and uh I loved it because then I was doing both simultaneously I was writing about uh Max and uh I was playing with the tech Technology, the tech toys, and uh, and and getting to write about them, and and starting my uh, media career. So that really was it. Is I was combining an enthusiasm with, uh, you know, of of technology with uh, my skills that I had been building up as a as a writer and an editor. Um, and so it was, and it was fun. It was a great combination. And, and so looking back, I would say that in some ways, if if you were somebody who knew me in in high school, you would not be shocked, you know, to find that, that this is my career path. Now, when I went to my okay. when I went to my high school reunion, um, what I found out, see, I've been saying this, and now I've sort of invalidated it because what I found out when I went to my high school reunion is some of the people remember me as a computer guy, and some of the people remember me as a media guy, a video or or newspaper or writer kind of guy. Um. But nobody seemed, except for some of my closest friends from then, to remember that I did both. So it's like some of them were surprised <laughs> that I was in the media, but they weren't surprised about the computers. And some of them were surprised about computers, but not the media. Um, but anyway, I I don't think my career path has been too shocking because I was interested in this stuff. In seventh grade, I was interested in these two things. And I've been very fortunate that I've been able to combine both of them um, for as long as I have. So that's, that's, that's sort of it is it did, it, it came out of a dual interest. I was always, I'm not one of those people who was like, well, technology, that seems marketable. I'll write about that. <laughs> it was like, no, I was a tech obsessed person. I loved it. I was always a, a the, one of the computer people. And, uh, but I was also a media obsessed person. I had a radio show in, in, in high school on the high, we had a high school radio station. I worked at the high school newspaper and we had a video production uh, class and I made you know videos both uh, movies and also some you know news kind of stuff uh, so it was both of those were always there okay yeah that's because yeah that sort of makes sense I guess because I, I didn't know you were uh, at well Mac user and then Mac were the whole time I figured there was a break in between that somewhere the whole time the whole Wow. Okay. So that that sort of I've never great. I've never quit a job or left a job to go to another job in my professional career. Not yet, anyway. <laughs> just, I imagine that will happen here at some point. But but um, because I like starting an intern and getting to editorial director, there were lots of jobs in between. So every couple of years, I've been doing something different, except for the sort of eight years as editor in chief in MacWorld, which is the number one reason I took the job I have now. Is I figured I'd done that job for eight years and it was a great job. It was sort of the job that I'd always wanted, but. Uh, you know, you do a job for eight years and you're like, I should probably try something else, you know, so. 
So, okay, so because you've been in like print publishing and now online publishing, which is something I sort of love to talk about these days, uh, how has that transition been? Like, how have you seen that transition? Like, because right now print is sort of in decline, I guess. Nobody yeah. really knows. I mean, <laughs> it's I either it's, in decline it's, or it's hit the bottom and it's just basically, declined. yeah, because uh, yeah, that was my point. But it's <laughs> just like it, it can go lower. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but so, so how, I mean, uh, I have a question I have written down, which is, you know, how are you dealing with that? But that's a stupid <laughs> question. <laughs> but seriously, how, how, like, how are you dealing with that? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, I've got a couple, a, a couple answers there. One is personally, I, I am not dealing with it at all because I have always been interested in digital publishing and online publishing. I, um, in high school, I ran a bulletin board. And on it, I had short, uh, I had a, a I posted short stories, and I, I had a serial where you know a, a new chapter every week. And I'm not sure if anybody ever read them, but I I did that. And when I went to college, I started a magazine that was distributed over the internet that was called Intertext. That was um, you know short it was short fiction, but there was a an ASCII version that we posted to newsgroups, and you could get by email. And there was a a postscript version. It was there weren't even PDFs yet. Uh, that you could dump to a laser printer and get a laid out magazine and so so um i've always been interested in that and then and then in 96 i want to say somewhere around in there a bunch of my friends who are a lot of them st- still doing the incomparable with me actually started a, a blog a very very early blog called tv which was about television obviously t e e v e and so um and my first job at Mac user was as uh, online editor. Uh, so I personally, I've always been interested in digital. And every now and then I talk to somebody who's like, well, so you're, you know, you come from a print background. And it's like, totally not. I worked for a print magazine because that was where the jobs were. Um, and the web was not a thing when I got a job. But the whole time I was always thinking about the internet and online, and then eventually the web. I actually had a conversation with one of the people who who ran our online efforts at Ziff Davis in the in the 90s, where I said, "We really do you know about the web? We really need to do a website for Mac user." And the guy basically said, "No, I I, I made the website, and I said we need to post this at MacUser.com. I know we have the domain. We need to post this." And it was just like, you know, how to subscribe and how to send us an email. It was nothing. It was just a presence. And the guy's response was, "The future is on CompuServe." Which is like, <laughs> so, so for me personally, I love that um, that the web has risen and digital has risen, and and you know, seeing print decline is sad, but it was inevitable. It was an inevitable, you know, when I started, it was inevitable because we saw all the online services and then the web coming up. So it was it was always inevitable. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. I think it's exciting. I mean, I, I do sometimes think about how comfortable it might've been, might've been to have a career in the mid to late 20th century where, um, uh, print media was so, just incredibly static and incredibly profitable. Um, because mm-hmm. was, that, that must've been nice. Uh, but yeah. I, I was fortunate enough to be born in a time when the idea of putting ink on paper that had been huge for 500 years is in the midst of a what 50 year transition from being the big thing to being gone largely. And I get to live through that for my professional career. So 
that's fun. That's really cool. There's a lot of new stuff out there. That's why I do podcasts and I did an internet magazine. It's like, try out this new stuff and see what it's like. Um, career wise, it is, it is a challenge. And that's, that's the part where like, how, how is the company faring? How are media companies faring? How are, are the individual magazines, websites faring? And that's a harder question. I, I spent, um, five years probably at Macworld wrestling with trying to get a staff to think about the web as the primary medium and not print. And that's actually been the case for many years now that Macworld's editors don't think of the the magazine as where they publish. They think of the web and the magazine gets made afterward. And it's like the best of what we did on the web. That's been the case for a long time. And PC World has, uh, since I took that over, that's been, in some ways, they were actually more advanced than Macworld in terms of thinking about the web as primary. In other ways, they were they were way behind and needed uh, needed some serious change. Uh, and so I got to kind of beat my head against that again, which is not, it's not fun because, you know, people like comfort, yeah. people like doing things, you know, people like doing things the way they've done them. And not changing. It's just even if they know they need to change, they don't want to change. And you can get them to agree with you that they need to change, but that they don't change. And you have to go back to them and say, remember when we said you need to change? And they'll say, yes, totally. But they don't change. And and that's been that's been a big challenge is, is that not everybody, even in tech journalism, not everybody uh, gets it. And really not everybody wants to embrace it because – they're uncomfortable um, with the change. They don't like the rate of the, the pace. I don't mind the pace of online, which is like instantaneous because I used to do news. Um, but some people just, they want to go at their own pace. And you can't do that as much on the web. Or they um, or you want them to do videos and podcasts and they're not comfortable on camera or in front of a microphone. Uh, so it's, that part is really hard. And then, and then from a business perspective, it's really hard because you've got on the business side, even if you're doing good editorial content, the business is changing rapidly and it's not just the medium that we publish to. We've been adapting to that as much as we can, I think, and doing a a decent job of it. You could always do better, but on the business side, there's a whole other set of dynamics that are also happening where advertisers are abandoning print and going to the web. And then what they want on the web is different. And, and, you know, they want to buy audiences and not individual brands. And they, they, you know, they want direct response instead of branding advertising. And that ends up leading to all sorts of um, turbulence in terms of the revenues up, the revenues back down. You got to do layoffs. Now we need more traffic, but you don't have any people because you laid them off. And that's, uh, that's been pretty turbulent. So, you know, I, it's funny. Um, I, I, yeah, it, it, it's a challenge. It's a, it's, it's been really hard. And I think, um, you know, I, I think we're, I think we're kind of past it now in the sense that, in a sense that we don't, we have the print is almost like an aside now. It's like it hap, it happens for MacWorld, and there's a digital <laughs> magazine, but not a print thing yeah. for PC World. But it's not, it's not what we do. It's like we've got a group of people who do it after the fact because the web is really where we've been focused, and the the, the challenges are not. Right now, I'd say my biggest concerns are all about the uh, the business, and. Uh, more than they are about the the content, although I've got some concerns about the content too. But it's it's about what what people on the web want and how you make that happen with the resources that we've got. But that you know that that's that's life. That's 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 how that's how it works. It's not a it's not fundamentally about a change in mediums media anymore. It's just about 
the the changes in this medium of web publishing, which is different than going through a print transition like we did for five or ten years. Yeah, and the business side has to shake out somehow. That, that like some some sort of like rules and <laughs> I, I don't know yeah. gravity needs to sort of become a thing there because well, now it, it's all floating around. If At least all, that's how I see it. If yeah. all web revenue five years ago was based on banner ads and you know theoretically in five years there might be no banner ads or they'll yeah. all be really lousy you know banner ads what happens i mean I, I think that's i think that's a real fundamental question and i'm glad i'm not a a business guy to answer it i i do ponder it a lot as a an editorial guy like what what happens then you've got these businesses that are built up on um all this ad revenue and you, there was a time when I thought that um, the media companies of the future would be all salespeople and that the editors would just all be fired and that they would have freelancers and they would have, you know, computers writing things and databases and, and my job would be over and it would just be the salespeople. They would rule the, rule the earth. But for the last five or ten years, I've been thinking, no, the future of the media is that the salespeople are all going to disappear and it's just going to be the editors and writers because they're making the thing that has value. And Google and its ilk are going to completely invalidate all of the ways that things get sold. Now, that's probably extreme, but some of that is happening. I mean, it, it, is, really, it is really hard to... Um, you know, use those old sales approaches in a world where there are ad networks and ad exchanges and uh, Google out there yeah. to do this stuff. So, so um, you know, that'll be interesting to see. Do you, you know, is the right what's the right model for a media company? Is it a bunch of single people? Is it a, a collective of like five writers, or is there a, is there room for a fifty or a hundred person company with uh, salespeople and marketing people and an editorial staff and some staff writers and some freelancers? I, that's what we are, and I don't know whether that is a shape that will um, will fit in the landscape in five years. I I honestly don't know. It might, but um, it might be that what you really want is something like you know a staff of five or ten editors and writers, and then a couple business people and an ad network. I don't I don't I really don't know what the economics are going to be like. Yeah, as a content guy, I hope you're right. That's what I'm, say. <laughs> I, I'm, encur I'm encouraged. Yeah, I read those articles that say, you know, unless you're the very best at what you do, unless you're the one or one or two t best writers in your subject area, you will not be able to make a living as a writer in five years. And uh, there's some truth to that in that, you know, if 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 every city has its own newspaper reporter who's writing about politics, uh, like like uh, national politics, um, you don't need those people. Or you know, every city has eight writers who are writing about the baseball team you might only end up with two there's there's some of that that is true but i'm not entirely convinced that you know the only people who write about technology in five years will be the verge and cnet i don't you know i just don't think i don't think that's true um but we'll see okay Wow, that was actually like a hell of a lot more optimistic than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, or or we will all find lucrative jobs doing project management or woodworking or <laughs> woodworking yeah, or uh, driving a garbage truck. <laughs> oh wow! But like I, I like I told Glenn. Like, I wish you guys would see how it is over here. Like, it's just, yeah, because I think some of that optimism would just not be that, uh, I think. <laughs> yeah. So how, how is it over there? 
Oh, it's, you know, Europe. Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah, know. We're, we're... I, I go back and forth with the optimism, but I, I see people out there and not, you know, you can't just point at John Gruper, but like I see people out there who are, I think, I think you can, I think you, there's a business to be made having uh, writing good stuff and having writing good stuff making good podcasts having a loyal audience i think there i think there are small businesses to be made there but that's the thing is i'm not sure if the i think the verges of the world can probably make it and i think you know the ars technicas or the you know max stories of the world can make it where it's like a couple of people the question is Mm -hmm. is there um you know, is there something in between? Is because that's where all the traditional publishers are. Is these in betweens where there's huge overhead, but they've got these big sales staffs that come in and bring in a million dollars. But if that goes away, you know, I, I don't know. And and yeah, not everybody can be a one person daring fireball because people aren't going to read eighteen different daring fireballs every day. Yeah, and you see, that's all through the prism of being a, like an American where there's three hundred million people in the country. Right. Right. Yeah, fair that's, enough. That's the thing. Yeah, that's why I told Glenn and he just, you know, like I blew his mind on a couple of points basically. <laughs> well, well, I've got that I've got that episode in my in my podcast app, but I haven't listened to just the oh, begin, sure? just the beginning where you talk about swearing in various languages. Um, <laughs> but but I'll get to the rest of it. But yeah, it's it's I mean, I think this is one of the smart things that Federico Vitici did when he launched Mac Stories in English is the beauty of the web is you can live in Viterbo, Italy, and become one of the best um, Apple websites on the planet and get a big audience that's in all the English-speaking countries and all the other countries who have people who care about the subject and and, and can speak or read English. And so he, he chose a, a really large market. Um, if you're covering local stuff and if, and if you're, or if you're covering it in a language that is only spoken by a certain number of people, it's a lot harder. And that, I would say that's your predicament is very similar, I think, to the predicament of like local news in the U S where it's like, I, I have, we have a, a, a newspaper in my County that's not very good. And then like my city has almost nobody covering it. They tried patch.com. It didn't really work. And there's gotta be a way to have like, even if it's one person, like one person reporting about my local issues and and that's where essentially like the the local issues in my town are just not covered anywhere independently by anybody because the 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 market's too small and the economics don't work when in the old days a newspaper wouldn't would have been able to make it work because the economics were different but now you know it's just a, a wasteland I think that's so that yeah that that's sort of the vibe of us going okay for it, yes. <laughs> all right all right yeah yeah well because then it's the small I mean tech tech is like I I have an addressable audience of everybody who reads English in the world who cares about technology and yeah there's some local differences if you're in Norway or if you're in Slovenia or if you're in Ireland or if you're in Brazil but you know you can that's my addressable audience for tech and um yeah if i was writing about mill valley or marin county um or even the bay area you know if i wrote about the bay area my addressable audience is seven million you know my writing about technology in english my addressable audience is what half a billion at least so 
Uh, you know, that's the that the scale really helps. <laughs> that's, that's yeah, I just love it. I would say seven million events by and Slovenia's two million people. Right. See that. Well no, that's the that's the perspective, right? Is that is that um that that we it's harder for us in the US to 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 get is that yeah, my my region, the seven Bay Area counties, I think is seven million. Uh and Slovenia's three million. So that's a two. Or two million, two, two million. million. Yeah. I'm trying to think what what uh, what would be a comparable U.S. region to, to two See, million. The, the, the sheer fact that you can't even like think that small is <laughs> hilarious to me that you can't find like a region. Well, I did gr- I I did grow up in a in a small town, but uh, well, Louisville, Kentucky is one point five million. Um, just, uh, you know, so so yeah, but but there is there's a Louisville, Kentucky market, but the idea is they also have all of the national. All of the English language media, whereas with Slovenia, you have you have two million, and and that's the entire addressable market. Basically, yes. So imagine yeah. how big a niche is over here. I oh, you, like it's, it's you and me, basically. Right, <laughs> right. If I, yeah, that that's sort of the that's the mind frame here, I guess. Cincinnati, Ohio, two point two million. Yeah, see, it's, it's two hundred thousand. It's a lot when you're talking. Yeah, about you're right. <laughs> right, but that's... Okay, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll go to the last portion of the show. Okay, because so, yeah, okay, so we had the optimism and then the you know pessimism. <laughs> <I guess>. so, <laughs> okay, so I, I ask each guest about their you know hardware and software because uh, you know that's what I write about mostly. Yay, so, technology. Uh, your 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 hardware, sir. My hardware. Um, I have a 2013 MacBook Air. Uh, it's it's the it's the uh, one of the privileges of being the editor of MacWorld, the editor in chief of uh, of uh, IDG, is that I get sometimes to pick my hardware. Um, we test we test all the variations uh, you can build to order of systems, and so whenever there's a new MacBook Air, they always get the ultimate configuration, which is a uh, uh, you know max out all the specs. Well, I have that in the 11 inch uh, 2013 MacBook Air, so it's a 1.7 gigahertz Core i7 with eight gigs with, with eight with eight gigs of RAM and the gigantic uh, what is this a 512 uh, yeah 512 gigabyte SSD. Um, it's, it's, it's outrageous. It really is. Although I had all my podcasts on it and, um, little 11 inch, little 11 inch MacBook air. So at home where I'm talking to you now, I have a little home office that I just set up with a little adjustable sit stand desk and a a Logitech Bluetooth keyboard and a a magic trackpad and a 23 inch Dell, um, flat panel monitor. So when I work at home, I use this setup. Um, the uh, the MacBook Air is in a uh, Book Arc uh, little stand from 12 South, and uh, so I, I plug it all in, and I'm, it's like I'm using a desktop computer. I've got my blue Snowball or no, my blue Yeti microphone on a boom arm hanging here off the side of the desk. And, oh, awesome! I'm on the Yeti as well. Yeah, and yeah, and okay. so this is my this is my setup at home, and this is my podcasting setup, and then yeah, I will edit the shows. Um, on that on the same computer and it's so fast that honestly my old macbook air the uh, 2011 version could edit in logic could edit like eight you know eight ten audio uh tracks simultaneously without the ssd makes it all possible and the i7 doesn't hurt um so that's my setup at home and then at work i have a thunderbolt display and a uh, a logitech bluetooth keyboard and a magic trackpad there i tried to just buy the same stuff more or less at home and at work so that I didn't have to feel like every time I switch places, it, it was weird. 
Um, mm. Although I do, I didn't buy a Thunderbolt display for myself. I'm holding out. Maybe if there's a Retina display at some point, I'll replace this Dell. But the Dell monitor is pretty good <laughs> and pretty cheap. And I got an iPhone um, 5S, and uh, my iPad is a uh, an iPad uh, Mini with Retina, uh, which I love. I love the Mini. That's what I went with. The Air was really tempting, but um, I like the Mini size. Just uh, just did it for me. Um, and what else would you like to know about my? About my computer. Oh, just things. the Kindle, because you have a Paperwhite, I'm guessing. I do have a Paperwhite, and I use it to uh, read my uh, my daily newspaper. I actually read on that because I think it's a better reading experience than the crummy um, iPad app that they wrote that is <laughs> has ads and doesn't scroll right. And the Kindle is kind of pure, and it's just text on a page, and that's what I like. And that's where I read most of my novels too. Is on the Kindle Paperwhite, and then in my you know in my in my. Uh, Living room, I've got a, in addition to the HDTV, I've got a, there's a Mac Mini back there with a bunch of hard drives attached to it that's sort of my media server. I've got uh, squeeze boxes, Logitech squeeze boxes for music through, oh, awesome. throughout the house. Okay. That's, a, that's one of those examples of a great uh, product that got bought and destroyed by the company. Logitech, actually, I'm also wearing Ultimate Ears headphones right now. Those are two companies that Logitech bought and destroyed. Uh, slim devices and <laughs> ultimate ears and neither of which are as good as they used to be and it makes me sad because the squeeze boxes were they're like sonos for people who don't know what squeeze boxes were um and they're discontinued now but they're very much like sonos and, and that it's an all home uh, audio stuff and the music streams from my the, the little mac mini that lives behind my tv set and that's where i back up to and i've got a couple backup drives there and and uh and uh yeah and there's what else is back there um I don't know, a bunch of game consoles and things like that. But that's <laughs> and an Apple TV. There's an Apple TV and a TiVo. Oh, and, of course, there's an Apple TV. So yeah. yeah, that's that's. Uh, I was going to write that down anyway. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've got I mean, a so, Roku uh, somewhere too. But I now that I've got a TiVo, that's that does pretty good Netflix and and uh, so I only and now that um, Amazon's streaming will do Air- Fire 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 TV thing. Yeah, I don't have that, but the Amazon streaming oh. app on the iPad does AirPlay now. So you oh, okay. you can get so you can Amazon Video it. on the Apple TV even though there's no app for it. Oh, awesome! Yeah, we don't have Amazon Video because we don't have a localized Amazon. Amazon is really Amazon. bad internationally. That's a funny thing that people don't it's people in the U.S. Awful. lose sight of that. That that yeah. if you if you draw a map of where Google, Apple, and Amazon are, you realize that Apple is in some ways the only one playing the international media game. It's really interesting. The, yes. Yes, which is sort of insane to me as I, to why Google isn't there. Like, I just do not understand that. Yeah. It's so weird. Yeah, Apple is pretty... And sa- saying that, it, Apple has its shortcomings. Oh, sure. Like, you know, it's just ahead the, of the I, rest of them. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, it's just so far ahead, but they're nowhere near to like where they should be. Right. Basically. Okay, so as far as software goes, just like the apps you actually use on your iPhone. Right. On my iPhone. Uh, Yes, on your iPhone. Okay, apps I actually use on my iPhone. I was I was winding up to to talk about the uh, talk about the Mac, but I will talk about the iPhone. Twitterific um, okay. is my is my Twitter client of choice. Uh, MLB at bat for the Major League Baseball app because I'm a baseball fan. Instacast is my podcasting app. I can't wait to try Marco Arment's podcasting app, but for now it's Instacast. Um, Fantastical. On the iPhone, I like. I don't really like it on the iPad, but I like it on the iPhone and the Mac. Um, grocery IQ is where my wife and I keep our, our, our grocery lists. It's actually great. Dropbox. Um, Vesper for notes. Um, Romantimatic by Greg Noss, which reminds me every couple of days to send a text to my wife telling her I love her. 
Can't. Oh yeah, I saw that piece he wrote yeah. when he got this. Oh, that was like one of my favorite things from last month. Yes. I think controversial, yeah, right. but it's yeah. You know. Well, yeah, but it's so well written. That was seriously that was one of my favorite things. So right, yeah, I'm gonna put a link into that to that also. So yeah, I think those oh, are the yeah. ones. Yeah. Oh, yeah, just uh, one more. Like, do you have any iPad specific apps? Like one or two that you just use on the iPad because that's sort of a thing I always ask because you know. Yeah, on something that has an equivalent on the iPhone, maybe. Sure. Um, let's see. Well, I, I I only read comics on the on the iPad, and I read them in in Comicsology or in Chunky Comic Reader, or I guess Marvel Unlimited. I read some there too. Um, but I there's a phone version, but I never use it on the iPhone. Um, Squeezebox has an there's a there's a control app for Squeezebox actually called iPeng, uh, like penguin that is. Um, a guy in Germany writes and there's an official one, but it's no good. And this is really great. And since I have the, that's my remote control for the, the all home music system, the TiVo app I use only on my iPad where I can load shows onto it from my DVR. Uh, that's where I play threes. I don't play threes anywhere else, <laughs> but on the iPad as it, you know, as it was intended. Um, <laughs> and I have the New York times iPad app is great. Um, so it's hidden away in newsstand where I can never remember it. Um, and, and I got to say, I don't use them as much as, uh, you might think at least yet, but I, they're a pleasure to use. I have the Microsoft office apps on here cause we're an office 365 company. And every now mm-hmm. and then now I take great pleasure in opening one of those out. And, and also I got to put in a word for Google drive. The Google drive app is essentially Microsoft office because yep. you have access to all Google docs and it used to be really lame. And there was only kind of a preview of your Google docs, but now you can edit a spreadsheet or a, a document from Google docs right in that app on the iPad. And it's really great. So I use that a lot too. Now. Yeah. I'm, I'm, we use it for the podcasts. Like Google drive is where we do all of our notes basically. Yeah. That's, that's what we use gotten... for the incomparable is I've got a big, uh, I got a big spreadsheet, a Google spreadsheet with all the show planning and stuff. Uh, same here. <laughs> it works. Right, so my last, <laughs> my last question, which is always the same, if you had to pick one like physical thing that isn't a person, so it can be your grandma, that made an impact on your life, you might still have it, you might not, but like just if you had to pick one, it can be a piece of technology or not, like anything goes. What would that be? One physical thing that had a big yes. impact on my life. Yes. I know you want to say the Apple too, but you know. <laughs> but not a piece of technology? Oh, it, it can be. It can be. Hmm. Well, what I really want to say is, is and forgive me because this is going to be really boring, is the Mac SE because <laughs> that, was the, that was the computer we had at the newspaper. That's the first Mac that I bought. And that was the thing that, I mean, that, that set me on the course to do what I still do 20 years, 25 years later, 24, something like that. Very, a long time ago, <laughs> later. Uh, it was that <laughs> moment of, of using the Macs at the office and then buying one of my own. Um, because I'm still, I mean, I'm still using the Mac today. That's been an unbroken line. Um, that got me into the Mac, which got me knowledgeable, made me start devouring Macworld and Mac user got me my job and uh, and my career and also I love it and all the things that I've made using the Mac. So I, I you know we are, this podcast has put me in a frame of mind of 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 technology. But I've got to say I think that's it. I, I think 
I think that would have to be the thing. I'm, you know, I could, I've got a trusty old baseball bat that I used to use to play softball, but I don't think I'm going to pick that. <laughs> I think I'll, I think I'm going to go with that original Mac SE that I had because that did change the entire course of my, um, my career, and my okay, well, creative life too. Well, yeah, you're a tech writer, so you can get away with that. Ah, you know, ah. <laughs> uh, Jason, that, that's pretty much it. Thank you very much for doing this. Oh, thank, thanks for having me. This was a great conversation. I really liked it.